one of the things, if you followed me for any length of time at all, you know that the Gospel of John has uh, really informed my thinking in regards to mysticism, Christianity, uh, <clears throat> for, you know, several years. It was my favorite gospel. I think that it is is written perhaps from a more mystical perspective than what we realize. So I want to I want to do two things. I want to look at a little bit the conventional what the conventional idea of John is and how it has a left hand path orientation. But then I want to look at the mystical side of the Gospel of John to show that it's really right hand. <laughs> And these two overlap. If you've been listening to me talk about this, you know, these two paths, the left-hand path, right-hand path overlap. So for those that maybe this is a new concept, this is the first time you've watched me, first video you've heard me do on the left-hand path or the right-hand path. Uh, basically, what it defines is two different approaches to spirituality. The right-hand path approach to spirituality is about sacrifice. The right-hand path approach to spirituality prioritizes the community. It's all about the community. The right-hand path prioritizes conformity. So you could say sacrifice, community, and conformity is the main characteristics of the right-hand path. And particularly, it emphasizes uh, losing yourself giving yourself, uh, merging with the deity, losing the ego. We talked in one of our live videos that the right-hand path is the path of the sun, S-U-N, uh, where it's believed that, that the gateway into the heavens is through the sun and that you're burned up and lose yourself or you're the drop in the ocean that gets swallowed in the ocean. And that's where you get some of this baptism by fire and stuff like that. It, the right-hand path has authorities, spiritual authorities. The right-hand path has dogmas. The right-hand path has basically submission to a guru, submission. And it doesn't matter. Listen, the modern form of gurus could be YouTube, <laughs> YouTubers. The modern form of gurus could be, I could be considered a guru for some people, maybe. I can't imagine that I am. Uh, but I could be. And by guru, I don't mean someone that teaches. I mean someone who, the word guru means to dispel the light. But the concept of a guru is someone that you surrender your thinking to, you surrender yourself to. So, your, you know, your guru could be the Bible. It could be uh, <laughs> your spirit guides, whatever. There again, this sacrifice, this surrender, this self-surrender, that's the right-hand path. Emphasizes community, emphasizes sacrifice, emphasizes conformity. Then you have the left-hand path. The left-hand path is a path of individual development. The left-hand path is uh, sort of the rugged pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of idea in some ways that Americans idealize. But more importantly, the left-hand path is the path of self-discovery, self-development, and realizing that there are parts of us that are unique in each one of us. We each one have very unique characteristics. Uh, we have very unique personalities. 
And the idea then is to not lose the self, sacrifice the self for the sake of the community and conformity. The idea is to crystallize the self, develop the self, and actualize the self for the benefit of the community, for the benefit of yourself and for the benefit of the community. So that's what the left-hand path is about. So then we have to ask ourselves a question. So then I go back, you know, as someone who's studied the Bible and read the Gospel of John and stuff a lot, and looking at this and saying, <laughs> where, where, where does Jesus fit in this paradigm? You know, the more I study, <clears throat> and I still study, uh, scriptures and Bible scholarship, and I, I still, you know, forever I'm going to be linked to that in my life. But the more I think about the Bible, the more I think about Jesus, the more I learn about Gnosticism, which is where I've been spending most of my time reading and studying and looking when I have time to read, study and look recently has been with Gnosticism. And the more I look at this stuff, the more I realize that we get different pictures of Jesus. Now, this is what Bible scholars, you know, now know for sure is that the Gospels were each written by a separate community for a separate purpose to reflect their theological theological bias towards Jesus and towards the Gospel. They're not being written to give you an accurate eyewitness account. So you get these composites of Jesus that are written by these different communities, not by single author eyewitnesses, that's been clearly disproven in biblical scholarship circles. So, but written by these communities. So the picture of the early church is not this one pristine, you know, faith of Christianity that's just flowing from the head, which is Jesus and the 12 and Paul and it's all, and, and, and then, you know, there's just this opposition being raised up by Satan. The picture of early Christianity is very many different competing groups, groups that competed with each other, who had different ideas about who Jesus was and what Jesus represented. So, for example, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, you can see a lot of differences between Matthew and Luke. They're very similar in some ways, but they're also very different. In Matthew's gospel, for the most part, Matthew's gospel is being written to Jewish people, and it's being written to them to help them understand the destruction of the temple and the Roman ransack that had happened in A.D. 70. And it's being written to present a alternative Judaism with Jesus as the new Moses. Jesus is replacing Moses or Jesus is the new Moses that's prophesied. So it's in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, don't think I've come to destroy the law, but I have come to uphold the law. I've come up to fulfill the law. Uh, where he says, you know, heaven and earth pass away, but no jot or tittle of this, of my, of the law will pass away. So if you look at the pattern of Matthew, the way Matthew tells the story, and you go back and you look at Exodus, 
you see that he's telling the story. He's shaping Jesus as the new Moses. So Jesus in Matthew's gospel, Herod is a main figure who orders the murder of all the young Hebrew children. And Jesus' family takes him down into Egypt. In Luke's gospel, there is no mention of a massacre of children. There really isn't any mention of Herod. And instead of having to flee after he's born, he goes up into the temple and is circumcised. And then they settle in Nazareth. And there's no mention of Egypt. But see, it's necessary for Matthew's telling for Jesus to be the new Moses for him to come up out of Egypt. So he's baptized in the water in Matthew's gospel, tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, 40-year wilderness journey. Then he comes back across the Jordan and gives the Sermon on the Mount, the retelling or expansion of the Torah, which is symbolic of Moses getting the law, the teaching on the mountain. So anyway, you can you can study that out some more if you want to. Luke doesn't present it that way. John doesn't present it this way at all. And John is being written later. So one of the things that's very interesting, Elaine Pagels, in her book, The Origin of Satan, does a brilliant job of this. She takes the Gospels and the time period in which they were written and what was going on historically between Jews and Christians during that particular year or time period when the gospel was being written and shows the evolution of things. And and so John's, here's my point, John's gospel is written much later and it's written really about the time that there is this division now between Christians and Jews. So now the Jews have, for the most for excommunicated Christians, they have split them off. There's a bit of a misunderstanding out there in the Jewish roots from their Jewish roots, when in fact it was more than more than likely, based on better scholarship, it was the Judaism, it was the Jewish people who cut off and excommunicated the Christians because they were kicking them out of their synagogues. They were uh, kicking them out of their communities and whatever. And so John's gospel is being written to an alienated group of Jewish Christians to explain Jesus in a different way. Now, when you just if you just read John's gospel, Jesus seems to have this very left hand path approach because in the left hand path, oftentimes there is this pressure, there's this tension between personal expression and development and community sacrifice and conformity. There's this tension that's there because so so here's what I'm saying. So in order to really follow the left-hand path, in order to change the programming that's in your mind in the left-hand path, you really have to be willing to examine groupthink. You really have to be able to challenge um, the status quo, at least in your own thinking and in your own mind, so that you can 
separate yourself from the community in order to self-actualize, in order to not be controlled by communal thinking or by groupthink. Now, groupthink is not inherently bad. And I want to make that clear because I think some of the logical errors that people are making, that I see people making uh, inside the spiritual communities that I frankly see posts occasionally, like very occasionally on Facebook. So let me, let me retract that because I haven't seen a lot. I, I haven't uh, participated in other spiritual communities, but there are some teachings that are out there, stuff that pops up for me on YouTube, maybe because of algorithms and things like that, or posts or memes <clears throat> where we think any kind of group think, any kind of group thinking is uh, negative. Any kind of group thinking is bad. And that is certainly not true. Uh, that sometimes group thinking is is healthy and good. The left-hand path person isn't just always rebelling, knee-jerk rebelling against groupthink. Oh, that's groupthink. Oh, well, you're just being a sheep. Oh, well, you're just following the crowd. No, 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 that's not what left-hand path uh, approach is. The left-hand path is willing to examine those areas of groupthink, find where the they find where you fit as a person and then determine, does this work for me? Does this not work for me? And I, and choose consciously to participate in agreement with others or choose consciously to break that agreement with others. See, the, the person who's just thinks group thinks bad and it's just bad to go along with the crowd and I, and I'm not going to be a sheep. That's just a program. You, you can be every bit as much asleep. Every bit as much on uh, uh, sacrificing self, not doing any self-work or shadow work at all or self-development, and, and you're just blindly taking the opposite approach of what the group does. You ever met that person? <laughs> yeah. If you're a supervisor, I guarantee you you've met that person, that it does not matter what you do or what you say. They are going to take the opposite approach because they are blind. They're not awake to the fact that they're even doing it. They're unconsciously taking the opposite, going the opposite way of the group, being in opposition with the group and think that they are um, being an influencer. Think that they're being an individual. Think that they're choosing for themselves over the group when, in fact, what they're doing is being controlled by the choice to be <laughs> to be contentious and to oppose. I hope you get what I'm saying. So when you look at Jesus in John's gospel from a certain perspective, he is very, I mean, John, John's writing this gospel. Let's not say look at Jesus because we don't even know if that's an accurate picture of Jesus. But the Jesus of John's gospel is not just the new Moses. The Jesus of John's gospel is basically saying, the entire group, the entire religion, the entire community, and the entire structure is false and controlling, and he is breaking with the entire community. So, for example, and you've got, you have to understand, so when Jesus says, probably one of the most misunderstood most difficult verses for people who are deconstructing from Christianity is 
John 14, three or six, I think it's six, um, seven. Anyway, one of those, it's early in John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. But we pull that out of context. When you place it in its context, what John's doing with Jesus and with the gospel is he's saying that the entire Jewish faith is invalid. So it starts out in John chapter 1. Basically what he's saying is these rituals that you're doing, He's, he's really, in John's gospel, he's slipping into the prophetic tradition. He's putting Jesus in the prophetic tradition. Whereas Matthew's putting Jesus in the Moses tradition, John is putting Jesus in the prophetic tradition in the sense that the prophets would say, your feast days, your celebrations, your all your religious activity means nothing because you are oppressing your neighbor. It means nothing because you're worshiping idols. It means nothing because you're not keeping the Sabbath. So John puts Jesus in that role, but hypes it up, turns it up because he says, no one has seen the father, you know, and again, without understanding the culture, and I don't want to take a lot of time going into first century Judaisms, but one stream of first century, century Judaism was a mystical stream that believed in ascension through the heavens and the vision of God, the, um, the uh, anyway, it's a term for it, but I forget it. It's been a while since I looked at it. So Jesus says, no one has seen, John, John says of Jesus, no one has seen God at any time. This, but the son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him to us. So not Moses, but Jesus. John three tells Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, you must be born again, you must be born from above. You must be born of the water and of the spirit. And then he says, no man has ascended into heaven, but the son of man who is in heaven. So, Here's this really aggressive left-hand path approach. And so they want to kill him. They want to kill him because he's a demon. They want to kill him because he makes himself equal with God. And at the end of the day, in John's telling of the gospel, it was the making of oneself equal with God that was the primary issue that got Jesus killed. And so if you understand that John's gospel is not being written by John the Apostle, it's not being written as a first-hand eyewitness account, it is being written to a community, a mystical Christian community, probably a Gnostic community of Jews, who are being persecuted for their faith and kicked out of their community. And so in one sense, they're taking sort of this left-hand path approach. They're not sacrificing their own thinking to the community. So it's being written to them to encourage them. But also this issue of Jesus being killed for thinking he was God. Again, I believe that the gospel is being written to awaken the divinity within the person. And so you understand then that there was a group that, that Jesus in these gospels becomes a archetype for the group itself. That's really important to understand. 
uh, when Matthew's being written, Jesus is being the Moses archetype to try to reconsolidate Judaism. In John's gospel, Jesus is being the archetype. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Jesus is being treated. He's being the personification of the community. The, the community of Christians is being ostracized. The community of Christians is being called demons. The community of Christians is being persecuted and threatened. And so Jesus, in the way the story is told, is living that out for the community. So the author, again, is not trying to write a newspaper article and vet his sources or a, a, a research paper and vet his sources or an eyewitness account about Jesus. Jesus is taking on the role. They, they're using the character of Jesus to highlight the role that they believe the community, that they as the community are playing in this drama of their life. So, so John's gospel becomes a psychodrama, if you will, of what the community is experiencing. But now here's the really interesting thing, because here's the other side of John's gospel. The other side of John's gospel is this. The son of himself can do nothing, but only what he sees the father doing, that the son will do likewise. In other words, you see this relationship of surrender to the father that is not portrayed really in the other Gospels. It's over and over and over again, over and over and over again. I do not speak of my own authority, but I speak for the one who sent me. Um, I do not do these works on my own, but it is a father that is within me. He's doing the work. Now, that is very right-hand path approach. I did not come to do my own will, but I came to do the will of the Father who sent me. So you have these two aspects together. Unless a grain of uh, John 12, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it won't bear any fruit. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. There's that whole admonition to deny yourself, not seek to save yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. And then ultimately, John's gospel is pointing to the glory, the glorification of the Son of Man in the crucifixion. Now, when you understand the sociological aspects of this, you can understand that these groups are being threatened with their life. And so this is about the time that martyrdom, just a little bit before the time that martyrdom is going to become uh, highlighted for the Christians as the highest expression of their faith. So they're being encouraged, look, it's to your glory. If you're crucified, if you're stoned by the Jews, if you're put to death, that is to your glory. Follow Jesus in that way. So creating a counterculture and a counter movement, which is, again, just a new community. So now we're back to right-hand path thinking. So while Jesus appears to be left-hand path, in John's gospel, from a different perspective, he looks very, very much right-hand path, and there's a whole new group think that the author is trying to crystallize. Incidentally, there's no evidence that the person who wrote John's gospel and wrote the book of Revelation are the same person. 
But one interesting thing about the book of Revelation, whoever is writing the book of Revelation, <clears throat> which could be another community that identified with John the Apostle, that identified themselves with John the Apostle. But whoever's writing Revelation, in the first part of it especially, is writing it to combat Pauline Christianity. So, for example, when if you go read the letter to the church of Ephesus, when Jesus says in the vision um, that you have tested those who are apostles and who lied and you have rejected them, he's talking about Pauline Christianity. He rebukes them for eating food sacrificed to idols. And Paul was very much saying in his letters, it's okay to eat things that have been sacrificed to idols. But anyway, when you do a very close, when Bible scholars do a very close uh, look at the sociological structures, the historical development of Christianity, who authored which books, and what's actually being said in Revelation and Paul's letters, that's the conclusion that a lot of scholars come to, that there was conflict between all these various different Christianities. That was just a side note. So let's come back to this whole right-hand, <clears throat> left-hand path thing with Jesus. So Jesus saying, you know, I surrender myself, I submit myself, I lose myself. So here's basically what Jesus is doing in John's Gospel. On the one hand, he is modeling left-hand path, uh, a left-hand path approach, breaking with the community, and being the individual, I am, that's why the I am's, right? I am in John. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the uh, light of the world. I am the manna and the bread that came down from heaven. So it's all this distinguishing of the self from the community. But in reality, it's right-hand path because what he's saying is, I'm the one, I am the only one, or basically what he's saying to the Jews is, I am harmonized with God. You do not even know God. I am harmonized with God. No one in your group has ever even seen God. I am harmonized with God. And you are of your father, the devil. Now, that makes this guy look incredibly narcissistic. And it does make it look like Jesus did try to start a new religion. And it does make it look like he's a cult leader. So when people, you know, people post stuff, drives me nuts. They post little memes and stuff. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to teach people to love. That's not at all what's going on. It's not at all what's going on. When Jesus and John is saying love one another, he's saying love one another within your own community. When you step back from this and you realize they're not talking about the Jesus of history, and trying to write a treatise to explain who he was because he was so wonderful. What they're doing is they're taking their own story and their own struggles. And then they are writing it into the text as a way to encourage and strengthen their own community context. So that what they're saying, essentially what they're saying is they're saying you have the true God. The Jews don't have the true God. You have the true way. The Jews don't have the true way. You have the way, the truth, and the life. They are not following the way, the truth, and the life. You are not of Satan or of the devil. They are of Satan and of the devil. And so you have this tribalism 
that comes into the text, which then if we take it as the word of God, which this is what's happened, we have these texts and particularly John's gospel as the word of God. And it sows the seeds of that, that same energy of tribalism is there and is in it. And so it consistently, for people that read it and follow it, identify with it and draw on the energy of it, they are consistently going to reproduce without sorting it out, without sifting it out, without separating the precious from the vile. They're going to consistently have that tribalism and that, that self and other dynamic and that is the seeds of anti-Semitism. And please understand, in, in Nazi Germany, in Nazi Germany, uh, it was the Christian church that, um, supported th- this persecution against the Jews. It was the Christian group that, it was the Bible and scriptures Martin Luther's quotes, various different ones that were used as divine justification for the violence that was committed. And we have to start being honest about that stuff, which, by the way, just as a side note, I've been studying a lot on on, um, white supremacist groups and trying to understand them, trying to understand the philosophies. And. The linchpin, most people don't realize this, the linchpin, the foundation, the cornerstone of the KKK, let's say specifically, is not uh, hating on the blacks. I mean, that's there, no arguing. I just thought before I studied this that they were, that's all they were about. But in actual fact, for the group's work, anti-Semitism is the keystone and the foundation of it. <clears throat> and please understand that these groups promote conspiracy theories about literally, and they've done this for, you know, this was the the case in Germany. They promoted a conspiracy theory about a cabal of Jews who were um, committing blood libel, drinking babies' blood. This is all in history books. And that they were ruling the world and depriving the white Christian male of his rightful place in the order of things. And then there was propaganda that they were subhuman, that they weren't human beings. They were Neanderthals. Now, bring that forward to today. And then there was all this justification. We have the revelation. We are the awake ones. We have the divine right. We're the ones that can really see the truth. Now translate that to today, and it's the same playbook. It's the same energy. It's the same pattern with the QAnon group and with stuff that happened in our, that's happening right now. Um, you know, there was people I realized in my life, once I started studying uh, white supremacist doctrines, I'm totally convinced are card-carrying members, <clears throat> and I didn't know it. Because of things they said in conversations that we had. So you have this stuff raising its head. I don't know why I'm talking about this. You had this stuff raising its ugly little head today in the form of spiritual teachings that talk about uh, cabal of blood drinking elites 
liberals, uh, movie stars, basically anybody that doesn't think like them. Check. <laughs> um, you have the, it's called adrenochrome. You can look it up and then compare it with blood libel. It's the same thing. And now instead of saying that there is a group of people maybe by their color or race, which, by the way, please understand, too, one of the reasons I was confused with white supremacy hating on Jews so much is because there's a lot of white Jews. I mean, their skin's white because a lot of them came from Europe. So it isn't just about race. It's about an ideology. It's about a group of people that adhere to an ideology and demonizing that group of people that adhere to that ideology. And then it getting to the point of the violent persecution and in the case of the Holocaust, the genocide of a group of people who held to an ideology. The roots and friction of it are in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> so you have this group that thinks they're awake, that thinks there are aliens now, this is really scary, guys. The alien thing wasn't on the map for Hitler. And this goes way back. This this didn't start with Hitler, by the way. It just culminated. And I'm not following into Godwin's principle. I don't think. Maybe I am, but who cares? Screw Godwin. <laughs> um, so, but this goes way back. This goes way back to the plague and... You know, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, the Jews were able to not get sick because they were drinking baby's blood or whatever. But so the Neanderthal was used to make a group of people who held to an ideology subhuman. It's really important because you can't get a group to commit that level of violence against their brothers and sisters. So we have to make them subhuman. We have to somehow make them evil. So. Now you have this concept of reptilian aliens. You have this concept of groups of wicked, dark-serving, devil-worshipping, whatever groups, right? And then we say it's all those that adhere to a certain ideology. It's the liberals. It's the elite. And they have to be elite because you have to feel put down by them. You have to feel like they're the problem. You have to have a way to scapegoat them. So we're seeing the same energies, same archetypes, same patterns rising up in humanity. Only this is being supported by a really weird version of Christianity and New Age spirituality. So whereas it was the church that was supporting the persecution in Germany with the Nazis, it's really QAnon and groups that affiliate with QAnon and people in awakened circles and communities who have been influenced by the poison of QAnon who really, really, really don't understand the structures of how these things have worked throughout history, how these things have worked against the Jews. They really don't understand the origins of 8chan and 4chan. Uh, and it's, the very existence to encourage white supremacy. And uh, anyway, I don't know how, I don't know how or why I got off on that. Let's come back. Let's come back. 
So I think I've definitely gleaned some things from John's gospel over the years, but I have a, you know, kind of a fresh understanding as I went back to look at this was Jesus left hand path or right hand path. And I would say that he was right hand path. And then he was left hand path to the degree, the degree that he was saying, y'all got it wrong. And that literally the purpose was to start a new religion or a new movement. But again, please keep all of that in the context of what I'm saying about how Jesus just personifies the group in the story as sort of a psychodrama for what they're experiencing in their lives. If you want to learn more about this, you can read Elaine Pagel's book. Um, reach out to me. There's lots of books I can recommend. I spent way too much time on that. It was very nerdy, very Bible nerdy of me, very hopefully not boring, um, probably not the most inspiring. Because what I really wanted to get down to is the difference between is, is this left-hand path approach <laughs> in Jesus' statement in John 7, 37 through 40, somewhere in there. It's the Feast Day of Atonement. And on the Feast Day of Atonement, the they would do this ritual where they would pour water out uh, down the steps of the temple to symbolize Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 47 of water flowing from the Holy of Holies out into the world. And Jesus makes this statement, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So what I want to do is look at that as a structure to say that in the left-hand path thinking, self-development, self-actualization, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the divine. And in the right-hand path, I suppose, you are the temple of the divine, too, from a certain perspective. But I want you to think about this. A temple in ancient culture stewarded and carried the image of God. The Latin for that is the Imago Dei, the image of God, a literal statue of the God. So you walk into a temple, there would be a statue of the God. This is the house of God. The priesthood was the servants of God. In very much the sense that a king had servants that would bring him food and bring him wine and that kind of stuff. That was what the priests in any temple religion or cult uh, was doing. And then they were also the stewards of the mysteries. And the mysteries were how did you come into union? How did you as a people come into a union with this particular deity? So the temple served as the house of that god, the priesthood served as the servants of the God and the people served as the initiates into the mysteries of that God for the purpose, for the most part, most of them of losing yourself in order to be unified with that deity and to have that deity's power, to have that deity's favor and to have that deity's blessing, to literally have that deity's life. Now the Catholic church kind of developed from the same sort of, structures and that'd be a talk maybe somebody somewhere maybe five people on the planet would be interested in someday (laughs) it's just that nerdy side right but this idea of being the temple is something totally different because the people were not the temple the temple was the temple the people were serving the temple the people were sacrificing the temple 
the people were going into the temple, but the idea that you are the temple can be a very powerful left-hand path approach. It can be a very powerful encouragement to self-actualization, to bringing forth the Imago Dei, the image of God in you, your personal genie, if you will, your personal genius, your personal divine spark, your higher self working with, um, I love, I love, I posted a video from Mark where he talks about the ego. I absolutely loved it. He put towards so many things that I've thought, but didn't have the language to say, but he talks about how the higher self and the ego self work together. They're not diametrically opposed and you don't want to destroy the ego. It's, it's just, it's brilliant. But th- that's this idea of building the temple. So I want you to think about this for a minute, that you are building a temple without hands, that you are building a temple for your spirit, for yourself, for your consciousness to dwell. And you have to do the work on the left-hand path. You can't have somebody pray it away for you. You can have somebody lay hands on you, impartation. I mean, you can take advantage of all those things. I'm not saying you have to be one or the other. But the goals and the philosophies are very different. So while you can borrow one or the other, you really cannot walk both paths because the philosophies are very different. Now, there probably is a middle path. So you've got a thesis and an antithesis between the right-hand path and the left-hand path, and there could be a synthesis between that dialectic that we might explore sometime. But philosophically, they're they're very much posed, Right? So in this left-hand path, you are building your temple. Your temple is made up of your body. Your temple is made up of your, your physical body. Your temple is made up of your thought body, the patterns and ways in which you think. Your temple is made up of your emotional body, your patterns of feelings and emotions. <clears throat> and your temple is made up of your Spiritual energy, the rivers, the streams of life flowing. So there's a divine spark, a divine source. The source of the river comes from you, not coming from heaven. I mean, it comes from God ultimately, but because you are the divine, this source of life is in you. And then you and I have the freedom to work with that current of energy, current of divine energy, to transform our thinking, our feeling, our physical bodies, our way of being, and 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 to exalt the Imago Dei, the image of God that is within us, and let that river, that current of life and power and water flow out from us. And so realize that you're living in the temple. So what's the quality of your temple? What's the quality of your thoughts? What is the quality and content of your feelings? What, how are you stewarding your physical body in how it relates to how you feel? What spiritual practices and things are you doing to raise the energies of the divine within you? And so all of this, because you are the temple in which the divine dwells out of in which the source is and out of which these divine currents of life flow. Then in the left-hand path, the right-hand path, you're destroying all that stuff. 
I want to get rid of my thinking. I want to get rid of any sense of separation, which they call the ego, that I have with the divine or with people. The left-hand path is saying, I want to distinguish myself very clearly from others. And I want to refine the self. I want to build the self. And I want to actualize the self. And I talked about this last week. When that happens, then I can offer myself because of my uniqueness, because of my distinction, in service to others, in service to my community. If you really think about it, your distinction is your gift. Your distinction is your service. If we were all the same, if we were all one, I don't even know what that means anymore. Uh, maybe I'm confusing oneness with sameness. Someone can straighten me out on that. But if we were all the same, if we were all conforming to one another, what distinguishes us that empowers us to really serve others? So again, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. Until you fulfill this service to yourself in self-development, Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, all these different ways. Until you can find out what makes you distinct and what distinguishes you, then you cannot be your greatest service to others. And you do that by following your bliss, right? So your service isn't a sacrifice. Your service is your bliss. If you enjoy hospitality, you enjoy hosting people. I mean, this is one I really appreciate. I, I know some people have a gift for hospitality, for entertaining you, for having you over and, and creating a wonderful evening and a wonderful experience for their guests. That is awesome. I think my mom had that kind of gift. And my mom loved it. You know, she, it was, it was an act of love, but she loved it because it was her bliss. And so she maximized that. She learned how to develop that. She learned how to maximize that. And that caused her to stand apart. And she held that door of hospitality open, not only in our home, but in everyone that she met. So that she was a, a really key, key part of our church community when we started because when she died, I mean, testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony. Your mom was the first person to speak to me. Your mom always made me feel loved. There were times I was too anxious because of my social anxiety to go to church, but I knew your mom would be there, and she would make me feel better and feel at peace. And so she had that hospitality as a expression. She had it. She it reached such a divine pitch and such a high peak of. Uh, warmness and openness and love and welcoming that she, that that river of hospitality, if you will, flowed out of her and was a service to so many others. So your distinctions don't have to be spectacular for you to stand out. Your distinctions don't have to be spectacular to stand out. In other words, you don't have to be the miracle worker. 
You don't have to glow with some kind of radiant light. You don't have to become a celebrity. Your distinctions do not have to be spectacular. But if developed, your distinctions will make you dynamic. Now, I did about three messages there today, just sharing my thoughts. Spent way too much time on the Gospel of John, nerding nerding out <coughs> on my Bible stuff. I plan on just touching on that and then getting to the John 7 stuff. Got off on the dynamics of reptilian aliens and how that, I'm going to tell you that is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous us and them dehumanizing teaching that for me mirrors very closely, very closely, especially the way it's being used to these people over here that don't think like us. The Jewish population is subhuman because they're Neanderthal. They're not like us. Um, it's a way to introduce the same kind of power and hatred that's behind racism against a group of people, not based on their colors, but based on their ideologies. Because we're not separated so much by physical borders anymore. We're separated by idea borders. So we have to find a way to demonize people that have different ideas than us so that we can destroy them. So we're going to say that this came, you know, from wherever. Um Okay. God bless you. Love you. Have a great and wonderful day.